and welcome to the sit down where we have conversations with creators from across this beautiful motherland of ours. My name is Malcolm Boy, a filmmaker and an all-round story lover. And today we are sitting down with Elias, who is a producer from South Africa. He is one of those filmmakers that everyone needs to know about. Have you ever heard of a filmmaker who makes a film that causes a whole nation to have an intimate conversation about their views on gender, on masculinity? I mean, it's, it's just one of those things that you cannot ignore. And he's here today to be able to share with us what his journey has been from the moment he left Brazil to the moment he arrived in South Africa. We are recording this over Zoom, so we apologize for any sound inconsistencies that we might have. The podcast. So to answer your question, how the year was, this, this is, I think, being everybody's year. I have like been interrupted multiple times by your children, by other family members, but like we're all on top of each other and it is what it is. But luckily, with um, the work that we had to do now was mostly in development, and development was able to move. We got very lucky with the timing, basically, in, in the sense that we, we finished three films back to back, and we released one of them, didn't actually get it, was going to release in competition in Durban now. And um, Resurrection, that we launched in Venice last year and a Brazilian film that we co-produced called Luna that was just before that. So we, um, we, we were in planned development time when this wave hit and we've been able to carry on with the work and also all the work that we do with Realness, which um, we were selecting producers for creative producing Daba for the first time. So we did a lot of reading. We had almost 200 submissions from all over the continent Oi. between the Light of Residency and the Producers Program. And, and we have nine projects in our production slate and as a production company as well. So there's a lot going on. That is a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah. And I guess that's the right place to start. I mean, getting to this point where you have you know, nine films on slate, you have so much more under development. How did it start? Did you always want to do this? So from the time you were born, it was your first joy, a pen? <laughs> um, actually, I did have artistic inclination as a kid. Are you serious? <laughs> I used to write and direct and star in no. our family. <laughs> no. I, we, I grew up in a very big family. Uh, my father had 13 siblings and my mother nine. So we were a lot of cousins, basically. That, that, was, that was a lot I, of people. I was the leader of the pack and I would rehearse them into like a Christmas play every year. Um, so that I would say was, was like my initiation in storytelling. Was, um, but the, the film thing came, I was around 25 and I... I was still lost and kind of country hopping, trying to find myself. Um, I finished my degree in tourism and hospitality in Brazil. You did and tourism and hospitality? Yeah, I did tourism and hospitality. And then I ran a, a, like a, a cultural arts venue in my hometown for a year with live performances every day of the week. Um, and then in London, at 25, I started um, 
working for an independent production company. That James Kilo, who is an American producer, was based in the UK at the time, brought me board to assist with a short that they were making called Losing Her. And I gave like a lot of blood to this thing and we actually shot the short film in the Tate Britain with a budget of 20,000 pounds. And um, that was my first producer credit. After the film was completed, they acknowledged that I, I had pulled in a lot of great miracles. And instead of a production assistant, they credited me as a producer. And I was like, oh, okay, I, okay, I can all do right. this. <laughs> yeah. that, that's a huge title. That, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah and um, from, like, I, did that, I did a lot of work in short form uh, before managing to cross this big river that is into long form. Um, so we made Ibokwe with the director. Wounds that was in competition at the Berlinale in 2014, which was kind of like our first big festival selection. It's not that long ago, it's only six years ago that we had our first big break. And not to take you back, but by the time you're doing, by the time you're going through, you had this family holidays, family Christmas things. By the time you're going to high school, did you feel like you, the arts was still the path that you wanted to follow? Was that, um, or was it just like a... It's very funny because um, I, was, uh, in, I was doing acting at the time. Even I in was, high school? Yes. At, at, no. So the family thing was before I was 10. And then at, uh, at 14, I got into the, like, to the top acting um, or performance school in... in in my hometown and was there for about a year and a half and then I did circus circus school. No. Yeah, at 17. <laughs> what are you doing at the circus? What and I became and I did street performance with a group of friends for like a couple of bucks here and there. Uh, we <laughs> balls and spitfire and, no. and and like did live like performances, yeah. So, <laughs> I would say the, the artistic blood has been running on my veins. Yeah, for a long time. But it's funny because my father said to me, um, because in Brazil you go into university at 18. I wanted to, like I was, I loved performance art and I, I, I really just loved it. And, and he said, no, you can't do this because this is for drug addicts and homosexuals. Oh, really? So, <laughs> <What>? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I, um, I listened to my dad's advice. <laughs> <laughs> and I went behind the camera. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a joke, but it's it, he actually said that to me. Oh, yeah. wow. Anyways, wow. <laughs> just a little wow. anecdote. <laughs> so, then, did you enjoy? Why the choice of hospitality and tourism, general? Like, how did you? I, I like traveling a lot. Like, yeah. I really enjoyed uh, seeing the world. I had already been to Australia and to Europe, and traveled quite a bit in Brazil. By the time I had to go into university, and I. 
couldn't really, I, I started thinking I was going to do medical school up until I was seven. And then I realized that I didn't want to spend the next 10 years inside the hospital. And I opted out before like the exam, six months before. And I didn't really know what else I could do. And I was like, oh, I like it. So I'm going to study tourism. Mm. <laughs> and I did for four years. I got a bachelor's. Yeah. And later did a, a postgraduate producing. Yeah. A master's that why I did, never. Why did you do the postgraduate in producing? What inspired? Was this before you got into the um, production? Was, um, so this was in 2013. I had kind of reached the ceiling with the short film work and really uh, wanting to to make a first feature but i had no idea how to come up with money you know like how to finance it so financing a, a short film project that has a budget in the range of five to fifty thousand euros is very different from raising a million to to make a long form and if you trust with that it just takes a lot of time so in 2000 and in 13, I started looking for avenues to, to gain access and to also like just the, the technical knowledge of, of how financing works. And I came across a program called uh, the Producers Workshop that EAV um, has been running for 30 years in Europe. And I joined this workshop that's a, a year-long training and this was what kind of like opened the the doors and allowed us to um, I, on that year i was making a micro budget feature with sib strong necktie youth so we we shot that film in 13 and well, I'm, I'm sorry in 14 and released it in 15 and it was the year that i was doing that training as well where i was given a lot of tools and and, and just access to uh, people that sit in this decision-making tables and so it kind of like introduce formally introduces you to to the material of, of international financing and co-production um and so that was the reason why i seeked that that postgrad in producing because i i knew how to line produce i knew how to execute a project how to develop content how to bring a team together but to like come up with a million to make something i didn't know how to how to do that and and i i needed holding and and access and that's what uh, it happened through through this program and and backed up by the work that we were producing to to that was playing in a, like in, a, in the international stage and i guess i'm wondering um from choosing tourism to desire of traveling how did you end up to how did you end up in the director's office to become a production assistant? What was, what was, um, what drove you there? Was, so I traveled a lot. I, I studied tourism. I traveled a lot domestically while I was still studying. I took a year and a half off. I went to live in Ibiza uh, in, in Spain and I came back. I finished, I'm sorry, I'm mixing up my models here. When I, when I traveled while I was still studying, I actually went to live in Munich in Germany. Yeah. For a year. You really do like traveling and living in yeah. other places. Well, you know what? Because of tourism, I needed to learn languages. So I first did I first did a program in the U.S. for six months that led to me having to 
freeze my university for a whole year. And the, pro the program was only for six months. So I decided to also go to Germany to learn English and Germany on that year that I took a year off from school. And came back to finish my course in Brazil. Um, completed it in, in, in the next three semesters. And then I had decided that I wanted to base myself in Europe. That I was to spend the semester in Ibiza just enjoying it before starting like a proper job in, in Barcelona. That was my goal. Um, but I fell in love and I ended up in London instead. <laughs> <laughs> As life happens. As life happens. Yeah. And I lived in London for seven years and worked in and out of London and internationally uh, for those seven years, uh, kind of between Brazil, US and Europe like doing different projects in different countries um, until 2010 when so there was like that's where the tourism and the film connected like i traveled a lot like i was traveling and traveling and um, in london i did so many different um, freelance jobs in different film crews um, a lot as a casting scout for advertising so um, all of those dove commercials with real women i actually um, ran after them on the streets of london and took their picture and no had those contacts over to the casting director heather march yes i didn't even approach someone in the middle of the street yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, that I did that in London, and that financed a lot of like my short filmmaking. And, uh, it was a good, uh, quick buck, um, temp work that 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 supported other things. Um, and then in 2010, I decided I wanted to stop, like just reflect on everything that I was doing instead of keep going to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and. I was doing a lot of television work and I wanted to do feature films. So I decided I was going to do a master's program and I applied at Goldsmiths in London and I applied in after, at AFTA in Johannesburg. And I got accepted into both programs and this teacher at Goldsmith said to me, I really think you should go to South Africa because you've been here, you have a network, you've turned many projects. If go into this completely new space. Uh, it's gonna be like a, a rebirth. And, and I listened to him and it's been 10 years that I came to live in Africa and it really has um, been an incredible 10 years. Like I think we finished seven features. Wow. The last decade and work that we couldn't be like more more proud of so talk about listening to the internal voice through like that was a a, a leap of faith what yeah. did you find when you came to south africa i mean coming to from everything that you said you you're in europe you're in london but you hadn't come to africa yet and then you're coming to your master's what was your first you know what was your experience joining after what was that like so I had friends who brought me here, so I was hosted in Joburg by friends that I knew already from London. They had invited me to come see their, their reserve. They 
they have land in the cradle, in the cradle of humankind, which is just outside Johannesburg. Um, and it was a very like Africa savannas kind of visit. A lot of gay vibes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice hats. And and also like the Africa metropolis that Johannesburg is. Yeah. Love, like so much flavor, so much color, so much noise, a bit of fear, um, like a city on edge kind of thing. Um, but I stayed for a whole month. So I actually got to, to see Joburg quite intimately. And I remember landing and it was, um, I think late April and it was like super, super dry. It was very dusty. Yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, God, like what? What am, I? <laughs> what am I doing here? And then I remember getting like infected by the city that just like thrives on your veins, kind of thing. And I ended up living in Joba for five years. It's crazy that I came for a visit and just it felt it's it's in a way in a in a, in a I think in, because. Like Brazil is a post-colonial space, there is a lot of similarities in the nuance of the spaces. So it feels a little bit like home, um, a lot more home than the decade in Europe that I spent. Yeah. So there was like this, this sense, like a lot of times, we even developed a project here called Two Rivers in 2013 that um, forms this parallel between people living in South Africa and Brazil. Like it's a Jap we made a documentary called Japan on a Friday, which is cinema verite, and it was a similar approach of following some characters and going through their everyday lives to talk about these two spaces that are actually very similar because there was a lot of Africanness dragged to Brazil and it was used in our food, in our culture, in our religion. And yeah, so it, it always felt um, like something I like something that I knew, you know. Um, and there was also a desire to move closer to the sea. And yeah. I eventually, after almost six years in Joburg, I decided to base myself in Cape Town. And I've been here now for the last five years. Yeah. And what was the first project um, you undertook while, while in Joburg and how is that like? And um, so I was working on a couple of short films that I, can, I had brought the material from London with me. So I just shot two pieces that I, like I was kind of trying my luck as a director, trying to understand if I was a producer or a director at that point in time. And I made two short films, one called Pink and Green and one called dying and other superpowers. And these two shorts um, were assembled in South Africa and finished in South Africa. So this was like kind of the first thing that I did through Ruku. And they had quite a nice festival career. And I started developing a first feature, trying to partner with a writer because I'm not a writer. And that didn't really go so well. Like what I learned from that journey is that I'm not a director and that my power really is in producing, like that's where I can really make a contribution. And I was on the verge of jumping off the ship and 
I actually did a month boot camp yoga teacher training <laughs> because I was going to leave the industry and set up like a wellness. Are you serious? <laughs> it, it, it could not have been that bad. No. No. I, so in the middle of the boot camp, I, it was 2011, I got invited by the South African uh, National Film and Video Foundation to join the delegation of filmmakers that was going to attend Cannes and Tribeca. And I thought, well, that's a sign that maybe I shouldn't be a yoga teacher. <laughs> <laughs> a big sign in a red poster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and then things uh, just took off from there. We made... Uh, Canadian South African co production, which is our first feature project as a called Jeffy on a Friday. We co produced Parabola from Montreal, and it was co directed by Shannon Walsh, a Canadian director, and Ariel Alou, a South African director, and uh, in collaboration with another five South African directors. Each of them directed a different story. It's a film that's made in one day, and it's just like a Speaking to the daily life of post-apartheid South Africa, twenty years after freedom, we follow five characters over the course of a day. We, Vianney Sondlu is the the editor that beautifully weaves these narratives together. And if you wish, Mark, I can share links of all this work if you want to walk through. And so that was our first feature uh, project in South Africa was Jappy and it very quickly taught me that the way because I'm not South African at the time I wasn't a taxpayer here I was a, a student so doing my master's so like you have to make sense of all of that as well because financing is very much linked to nationalities because we are dispersing public funding right um, and I kind of it kind of clicked for me that um, my strength would be to focus on the international. And this first co-production with Canada was a, a good example of that. And um, we started developing The Wound Never with John Trangrove, which became our biggest success to, to date. But it started development that back then. John was also quite frustrated with his own half that had landed him in advertising. He was really wanting to do something more artistic, more creative. And we decided to join forces and make an alliance that we're going to like be each other's like out of this hellhole and like launch our careers and, and find a project that, that we would use as a vehicle for that. And that was, that's like, that's how our partnership on that film was forged. He was already working with Batana Bundla. There was already a concept in place. Uh, there was no script yet. It was just a, an idea at the time. Um, and we partnered with Tando Moklozona and Malusi Bengu on the writing of the screenplay. And I think five years later, I learned the trick of how to finance a feature film. <laughs> <laughs> while they wrote multiple multiple drafts yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually we got there we like we went into production underfinanced like we have 
done in every single film we made, we end up deferring a lot of the key creative fees. Very unfortunate because it's the people that the film doesn't exist without. And I think when you make work of that scale, you should be empowered to make your next work. So I think it's very important to fully remunerate your, your writer, your director, producer, because without these three key positions, the project doesn't really exist. And you end up, especially when you're making your first and second film, remortgage your mother if you have to, you know, to, <laughs> to complete the project. Yeah. Um, so it's, um, you, you go in under not very comfortable circumstances and the project needs to, to, to be delivered to very high standards to be able to stand its place in, in the world stage. Yeah? So it's, like it's a constant juggle. But we uh, completed the wound and then things started getting a bit more manageable because now there's a in place, there's relationship not only with the national film financing sources and an understanding of the ecosystem because South Africa is actually quite privileged in that sense. We have a pet fund, we have regional film firms, we have municipal agencies and uh, film commissions. You know? There's broadcasters, there's pay TV channels, there's a VOD streamer, like there's, um, there's a lot here, but it's, it's, it's not true for a lot of other countries in the continent. Um, it took time to, to understand how you, you co-finance, you make use of what you have here and you top it up with what's available out there. And, and also to understand that international co-production is not just about money. It's not about a bag of money. It's about identifying what skills are you short of that the country that you're collaborating with can bring to the table and, and raise the bar. So establish creative collaborations that result in real growth. Yeah, narrative forms or aesthetics or create sparks that push boundaries. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm saying this right. Is it Urushu? Urushu? Because yeah, with the Uruku. Because <laughs> yeah. for Swahili, we'd have said Urushu. <laughs> mm. uh, what does it mean in Swahili? Does it, have, does it mean something? Nothing. It's just the way we read things. Okay. <laughs> it's just, we read them the way they're they're written, so it's just, uh, it's one of those things. Um, how did that come? How did you end up deciding, and I guess we talk about the company and then also the residency. How did those two things come so into Uruku, um, I'm, I'm Uruku is actually a Portuguese word. Yeah. Or better than Portuguese. It's a, it's a Tupi Guarani word. Or, what is <laughs> it's, it's our Aboriginal language, like our oh, oh. our before the Portuguese colonized ah, okay. uh, Brazil, um, there were indigenous people and they spoke that language. So Uruku and 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 these people, these indigenous people of Brazil, they used this uh, Uruku is a, is a 
a seed with a plant and they used they would crush the seeds and it turns into a red powder that you mix with oil and you make artwork you make body art and and, and you paint on walls so and I, I and it's a very enigmatic word and quite a bold word um, so I thought it could be an interesting play with my Brazilianness in this African space. Yeah. Everybody thinks the word is African. African, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, 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 so I have, that's exactly, I'm actually surprised it's not. <laughs> so like the films we make, there's a lot of complexity in that name. <laughs> um, and it was um, with Jeppe on a Friday, I was doing my master in Joburg, minding my business, and I made... Uh, Trying I, to mind your business. Yeah, <laughs> I made friends with... Um, went to Durban, and I was at the Q&A of this film, and, and I, I was like, I asked the director, I was like, this work is so... Uh, such an interesting reference for something I'm developing in Johannesburg. And I was working with Guy Tillems, who is a photographer here. He did a really interesting... Uh, imagery of the evictions that happened in the inner city of Johannesburg and I wanted to revisit those frames and see what was happening in those spaces and I asked Shannon if she would be willing to collaborate with me on this documentary and she's like well I'm actually moving to Joburg to do a postdoctorate so she came and my project kind of uh, I fulfilled my need of the project that I was developing by partnering on JEPI, which is a project that was already happening. I was working as a production manager of sorts. And their partnership with the South African producers didn't go so well, and they asked me to step in as the producer, and I took the film on to finish. And that's when I decided I wasn't so interested in the... Um, must, like in the academic life, that I was better doing things than like writing about doing things. And that I needed a lot more empirical experience before I could go and do a master's in, in anything. And I went into that. So that's, yeah, that's how Jeppy kind of sucked me out of school into the real world. <laughs> <laughs> And then realness, um, I, like I said, I didn't really know how to finance a film. So I, I applied for all these different labs all over the world as an emerging producer to meet people, expand my network, understand how the, the money is raised. And in the course of that, I sat through a lot of presentations of film funds and they all talk about how they had appetites for diversity and how they wanted to see more stories coming out of Africa. And then they would show you their results and you could see that they're not putting their money where their mouth is. There's no money coming to support development or production now. And I kept asking this question, why? And the answer was very consistent. People always said, unfortunately, the African projects don't arrive at the consideration table developed to a certain standard. The documents are not presented in a format that the funds understand. And so we decided to launch 
um, a development initiative to try and address that. Uh, and tied to, to, to this response, there's also this knowledge that we don't really have development financing in the continent. Again, South Africa has a national fund and UK is a different fund as well. But it doesn't fund, if I wanted to produce a film in Kenya, for example, that money is not good for that. Yeah? So there's all these national strings attached to money. Um, I, I kind of lost my train of thought where I was going with this. No, it was more of you learning uh, the process of how do yeah. I get, how do I connect this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Money. So uh, I, I remember we were talking about how realness came about. Yeah. Um, so we thought, how can we um, create an initiative that responds to this need of the projects being more developed, more fleshed out, and in a, in, a, in a certain format. And we decided to run a call of submissions and we found the resident space and we started asking to the people on these workshops that I had attended as an emerging talent myself and say, listen, how about we fix that thing and we develop the projects and make sure they start getting the money because they're up to standard now. And everybody said yes, like there was such a need for it. Everybody said yes, like so from Toronto to Sundance to O'Connor and Venice and um, La Fabrique in Cannes. There's like a partnership with all of the big institutions of cinema in the world because again, the appetite is there. Yeah. No? Mm -hmm. um, so it's now been five years of running the residency program and we developed 22 projects in 13 countries in Africa. The two first films were made. Uh, Hiwata Damasu, an Ethiopia finished her film first and she competed in Toronto and Berlinale with the short. Um, and then Lemohang, Jeremiah Mosese, who directed It's Not a Burrow, It's a Resurrection. It's Not a Burrow, It's a Resurrection. Um, the film opened in Venice and then won the visionary filmmaking award in Sundance mm. January wow. before shit hit the fan. And, <laughs> yeah. and it has won another three or four awards between Shanghai, New, and Portland um, that I can think of. So the film has been playing in a lot of the online festivals and, and performing a lot. Uh, it's being represented by Memento top art house film sales in the world and it sold a number of territories in Europe, China. So it's exciting times ahead because there's another 22 projects that have been nurtured and interrogated. And in development, it is always important to leave room for error. So it doesn't mean that all 22 will become films. There is an European study that every six films developed, one goes into production. But I think that's also because they can afford to develop and they switch off projects that are not um, evolving in a certain speed or to a certain standard relatively easily because 
they know they can raise the, the development for the next film. Here, the money is so scarce that we tend to fight really hard for the films that we develop. Yeah. And what do you feel like you've learned through the process of both building the company and building the residence? And I guess those are two different, but maybe they're all connected. But what, what do you feel like are the outstanding things that you've learned in each of them? To be patient that we are in a business of like long-term investment and um, it's been really reassuring to see that now that the company is going to turn 10 can like, you imagine wow 10 years we're saying that we're reaping the rewards and that we have secured a like a space in this in this independent cinema world and um and it's not for the faint-hearted, um, because the, it's so extremely competitive and it's so unglamorous. You know, at the end of the day, what we do is, is almost as hard as a factory worker you know, in terms of actually made the making of content. We work very long hours under stressful circumstances have like a large amount of money being spent per day so there's like the pressure to get things right it's, um yeah uh, the thing in my mind that i'm wondering is what do you tell every time you have a residency what do you tell this the writers who make it across what do you tell them when they make it to their residency i mean for them majority of them arrive there um, yeah so the sense of we come in market a very particular space in their path so the residence yeah. is not there as a grassroots training program we're aiming to to get kind of like give an upper hand to the people that have proven themselves in short form that are accomplished storytellers that have had shorts in the big festivals that have like spoken to international audiences that are clear voices the program is targeted at, at author, authors um, so we, what we do is we ask good questions, we challenge things that are not landing, we um, listen to each other. It's like a, a group exercise, it's a very non-prescriptive format. Um, and then they work with the story consultants Selina Kukoma and Mabatukao, who have been with us since the beginning of the residency. Um, and they each achieve different things in their time with us. But what is consistent is that it's a super nurturing space and kind of like a big surprise. Because I think everybody comes in with expectations of the process, but it's still like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised how intense it is and how honest mm. and, um, because it really is about them getting real with the story that they want to tell and we give them some tools to try and find the heart of it and, and the time and, and the space yeah? uh, this year we had to work online so it's been quite interesting because people have their lives happening in the middle of the process it's not like bringing people to that Nyrox like we did in the past um, and I feel like the biggest value that the residency offer is this shorthand on Africanness, 
there's no other African space where African creatives come together to discuss at that level. You know, a lot of a lot of you guys are traveling, like like I did as well, to different big festivals in the north, and you want like usually the only black person in the room, and people don't really understand what Africa is the way we do because we live here and there's no preconceived ideas of anything. Um, so I feel like that. African space is very sacred. And also this notion that we leave behind uh, five strangers and they become a family of writers in the end of the, the, the incubator. And, and like alliances that we've been seeing forging across multiple projects after the residency, like they've all kind of directed or shot or did something on each other's projects. Like there's been a lot of crossover, which is really cool to see. Um, so I think it's because it's also a space where we do, we deal with a tremendous amount of rejection. Uh, realness is a space like for, for a yes, like you've, there's obviously a selection <laughs> process, but once you've got that yes, it's a, a year long yes, 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 yes. Like um, we, there's a very uh, thorough uh, process in place to arrive at the top five. It, it, on the first years of the residency, it started with a pool of 150 projects that has come down a bit after five years, because I think there's only so many writers in the continent. And I think people get a bit jaded of not being selected and they don't understand how competitive it is. Because if you think that it started with 150 and you can only take five, it's like it's <laughs> yeah. people that, are here, that here know, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think some people just don't come back. And, um, and I think there's also an understanding of, of the level of work that we're looking for at the moment. And we, we now, uh, this year, I think we had 80 sub submissions in consideration. Uh, and we, it's a year that we ended up taking eight people in because we're doing it on Zoom, so we could afford to do it. And we were like, why not give access to this to, to more people? So we developed eight projects this year instead of the five, because Nyrox, our space, only has five bedrooms. So it's that's how we... We arrive. Oh, at interesting. The number. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if someone would have thought there was a complex system, no, it was yeah. the number of bedrooms that helped them decide. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Um, and in learning that residency, um, like what I learned is that there's like an, an endless amount of work to be done. That um, as we thought we're doing great with the writers, we realized that there was a real imbalance in what the producers could achieve. And also um, a lot of projects that should have been made by now that weren't because there's no producer that understands this, which was kind of like, I relate to it a lot. I feel it's like, like where I was in 2013. I had a lot of goodwill, I just didn't know how, you know? And if I had the money, I could deliver the film, but how do you get the fucking money, you know? So we decided to partner with this training organization that I went through their program in 2014, EAV. Yeah. 
IFFR Pro. Oh, wonderful. That's a nice circle back. Okay. Yeah. So they, they have been supporting realness for five years with a scholarship to an African producer to their program, which has been amazing to have more people formed and trained here. And there's like one from Angola, a couple from South Africa, um, Ethiopia, Kenya, uh, that received scholarships. Um, but we, um, they also do something already for a decade with Latin America and Asia. It's a, they select producers from both regions. And, that, and, and it's a similar workshop to the producers workshop, but with a focus on, on the regions, uh, international collaboration. And I proposed to them to do something for Africa because I was like, again, why, why are you not doing a program with Africa? And they said yes immediately. And they have been incredibly supporting and adaptable because also we didn't want to copy and paste their program into our context. So what we did, we started in 2000, um, so it was uh, Rotterdam two years ago two editions ago, not the last edition, but the edition before, we did a think tank where we invited 10 African and European producers to discuss what a program like this should look like. And then we've been testing the waters in different events internationally, both here in Durban at the Berlinale in Cannes. We engaged producers to ask questions like what would be useful. And we are announcing the lineup for this in the coming week. It's exciting um, people around this initiative. There's a strong focus on leadership because I feel like talking about international cooperation is a bit bullshit. We can keep doing the colonial exchange with Europe and taking euros, but giving up a lot for those euros and getting very little value for the money because the money has to be spent in Europe anyways, most of it the time so like how can we articulate a group of people that are aware and awake and willing to do the work because and 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 the selection was very strategic in the sense of picking people that have access to local governments to uh, international uh, local uh, cultural agencies because the idea is not to turn the next project. Yes, we are going to talk about film financing. We are going to talk about marketing, about audiences, about story development. Uh, we're going to talk about running sustainable businesses. But there is a very clear intention to develop leaders. And we are opening um, in Daba to set the tone with Tabitha Jackson, the director of Sundance, Cara Mertes, the director of the cultural programs at the Ford Foundation, and Sosana Kanile, the South African CEO of the National Film and Video Foundation. So we've approached three women in leadership roles to talk about that, uh, like to set the tone for the week and, and throughout the week. We have amazing people like Effie Brown, your white people, talking about 
uh, her company Game Changer, who's now running a film fund for people of color and disabled and LGBTQIX. Um, we have um, Stephen Markovitz doing a co-production case study, uh, as well as Ama Ampadu, who did Lamb, the open film at Cannes in 15. Um, we put a lot of time and effort in um, putting together a mentorship team, a mentorship team that is also African or in the diaspora. We didn't want to bring a bunch of Europeans to come here and tell Africans what to do. It was about also, this was voiced in the think tanks, like cut the scrap. There's a lot of black people in, in, in key positions of leadership and why can't we learn from them? And so we put a lot of time and effort in identifying people that were, um, some of them haven't worked as a trainer before. So uh, uh, take a chance and, and see how it works, but there's been, a lot of goodwill towards the initiative and we feel like it is a, a big step ahead for us as African producers to have a network of communication to try and establish, uh, like to share information and deals with what's in place. Like this stream was moving into Africa quite aggressively and kind of deals there, like the kind of license fees that are being paid for content when you compare to deals done elsewhere, it's just, it's, it, it's absurd. Yeah. So it's we, absurd, need to, yeah. we need to unite and speak with one voice and, and kind of put boundaries in place and uh, set precedents of sustainable business practices because they need the content and we need to feed our families and um, be in a good place to produce new art and new content, right? Um, so yeah, I feel like Indaba and Realness Institute is um, it's like a long-term commitment to, to, to change, to transformation of dynamics and to um, act like access granting and tool sharing and network building for, for our industry here, and ones willing to join. And there's no emerging produ producer selected. It's actually a group of super accomplished African professionals that have been interviewed and that have vowed to or pleaded to to join the fight, you know, to like to make it matter. I'm super excited about it. I I hope my baby that is in the belly is gonna be. No, <laughs> it could. She's 32 weeks pregnant now, and it could come at any time. So, um, I hope I'm, I'll be there to see it all happening because it's been two years of pulling this together. And I think just before we jump into a bit more detail for the YouTube part of this, which we're going to look at the films and what the madness of trying to get the wound made. I can't even imagine how many years that took. One question that we ask everyone who's, who's been on this podcast is, if you are to meet someone who's your biggest fan, I'm talking about someone who has their backyard looking like your backyard, you know, has your painting in their bedroom, someone whose shoes have your name written on the side, you know, and you only had five minutes with them. What would you teach them? Oh, 
Hmm. Um, I would tell them to not take rejection personal. That we are in a well, considering this person is aspiring to be a producer, because yeah. they could also be aspiring to become a parent and yeah. in an unconventional yeah. manner. And I could also yeah. give a lesson with you about that, but. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but uh, considering they want to be a producer, I think that's the, like the day I understood the rejection actually had nothing to do with me. This was a big day in my life because it just gives you the stamina and the courage to adapt and reshape to to finally find the match because it's about finding the right match at the end of the day. Um, and I think you become better at identifying those matches as time goes by. So the, the rejections also become lessened. Um, and I would also um, tell them that in order to make a first work, you need to be very realistic about what you're trying to achieve. And it will save everyone a lot of time and heartache and wastes of effort if you pick the right material to put your energy behind. And as a first time storyteller in the continent of Africa, you shouldn't be trying to tell a story that's like, like getting very practical that costs more than 300 to 500,000 euros to finance because it becomes very difficult to raise that kind of money. And as you get that one right, you raise the bar a bit and a bit and a bit and be more and more ambitious and, and, and have more complex um, setups. But to really focus your energy and your creativity and, and look far ahead into your career and there's multiple ideas that you have of stories that you want to tell and films that you want to make kind of put them in a hierarchy of the most complex to the least complex or let's not say complex because complexity even in the most simple, um, <laughs> simple and mean it should it's be still yeah, but yeah. I I think you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> like the the the, the, the least the, the 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 least achievable achievable to the to the most easily achievable maybe, uh, and work from there. I feel like in the beginning of my career, I spent a lot of time with grand ideas that people never ever ever trust me with the money to make them. In a in, under decent circumstances, circumstances to to give it a chance of success. So I'm basically saying keep it simple. And, and focus on development, for make sure the writing is right, make sure it's fully cooked because it's so much time and money that goes into making a picture that you should be 100% sure that that's what you're gonna shoot because that thing's gonna live forever. Yeah. It doesn't go away. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a signature in the sun, all right. Wanna say thank you so much for joining me for this session of the podcast. I'm looking forward to us jumping onto the, the YouTube part and going a bit deeper into what producing and the madness of it in this African context. 
Thank you so much for listening and thank you Elias for making time. And remember, you can join us on Rika's YouTube channel where we go deeper into Elias's work as a producer in this beautiful continent of ours. So see you on the next one.